Okay, do you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9? I think it is anyway, is it? 10? No, 9. 9 it is. I'm going to be starting around verse 27. And it's a... We've seen how Jesus has given instruction through the Sermon on the Mount to the people as to how they should behave and how they should treat one another and how they should be in relationship with God and with themselves. And, and now we've seen in the start of chapter 9 how the Lord is putting his words into action. We've seen him healing many people. And now we come to a point here where he comes across blind men and men who are dumb. And at verse 27 it says, as Jesus went on from there now, at the moment we're in Capernaum and he's making his way through Capernaum. And there's a great crowd following him. A great crowd that had come down the mountain, off the mountain of Beatitudes with him, who had been at his door the night before with lots and lots of people who were sick. And we saw how they had lifted the roof off the house and lowered a man through the floor. And then the next morning... Jesus comes back out again and he's making his way along the the side of the Sea of Galilee through Capernaum and there's even more people turning up to see what's happening. So as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Now, in some Gospels it says one blind man and some it says two blind men. We're in the same situation as we have with with the two demoniacs and the one demoniac. It was a if you want to call it, it was a literary um, anomaly within Hebrew and within Greek that if there were two and there was only one speaking, then it was only referred to as one. But Matthew here refers to it as two. So it's not a contradiction per se. It's just a sort of uh, grammatical way of putting things. Two things that really affected people's eyesight in the Judea and Samaria, Galilee at that time, was the strength of the sun, the eastern sun, is really quite strong in the summertime. Many times, you know, when we go out in the sun, we get our factor 50 on and all the rest of it, and our sunglasses and our reactor lights or whatever we're wearing. But in these days, they really didn't know about it. So people get really quite um, burned by the sun, if you want to call it, and affected by the sun, and it could affect their eyesight. If you're walking around with your eyes screwed up all day or having to look up at things, it can be quite difficult. It's, uh, the other thing, of course, that affected eyesight was hygiene. The water at that time wasn't particularly great, and that was in some reason why they drank wine. The water was a bit iffy. Um, but you find in a situation where they had wine, that it, they just fermented it enough to kill the bugs. Um, they had the same situation, I remember uh, reading about it in the 1700s in London, where they couldn't understand. There was an outbreak of typhus, and of course that's a waterborne disease, and there was a well, but all the women caught the typhus and all the men avoided it. And what they found out was that the men were actually not drinking the water, they were drinking the beer. <laughs> and, and, and so the, the fermentation in the beer had killed off the, the typhus bug. But the women had caught it because they had been drinking the water. So in many instances here where we see people drinking wine, it's not because they want to get legless. It's because it's a safer mode of drink. It's a very, it's a very light wine, if you want to call it that. 
But these two blind men, the whole crowd were following behind and they're shouting all the sort of messianic titles that, that, you know, son of man, son of David. And son of David was one of the great ones that they shouted because these people were waiting on a kind of warrior king to come. You know, and they were looking for somebody like David, a son of David. And we know from the Old Testament that David was a great warrior at, the, at his time. So it was a distant kind of messianic title. It was not something that you would refer to Jesus if you were talking to him in a one-to-one. It was something that you would shout out if you were part of a crowd or whatever. It wasn't a particularly... Um, you wouldn't walk up to Jesus and say, Hello, son of David, how are you getting on? Um, it was, but it was a messianic title. But it was not personal. And Jesus left them, the crowd. He could hear these people shouting, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he had gone indoors, at verse 28, the blind men came to him and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Now, all they had asked for was mercy. They only actually asked for healing. They'd asked for mercy. And here was Jesus. And he wasn't going to do this as a public demonstration. He had gone indoors, obviously into somebody's house in Capernaum. Maybe Peter's again, we don't know. But he came indoors and that indeed forced the blind men to come indoors. The people just followed him in. And he said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? He did it in private, not in public. Jesus questions their faith. He knows their heart, but he questions their faith and says, are you just shouting out, son of David, have mercy on us because the crowd are shouting out? Or do you really believe that I can do what it is you're wanting done. You want to receive your sight. In other words, was the request genuine or was it just emotional? And many, many times and in, in many, many meetings that I've been in, there have been many emotional responses to Jesus. But very few of them have actually been genuine. They very quickly drift away. And that was one of the big problems with the Billy Graham Crusades. There was no follow-up. There were thousands going forward for salvation. But follow them up five years later and there were literally tens or twenties that were left actually plugged into a church, a Bible-believing church and going on with the Lord. So there are situations and Jesus knew that where the emotions of a man will overtake his reason and he'll, he'll say things and do things that he really he just does out of the pure emotion of the thing. Did they really want healed? Did they really want healed? That was the question that Jesus was asking them. Do you really believe that I can do this for you? And you think, as we sit here this morning, we think, surely that's not a question. That's an idiotic question. Do you really want healed? You know, I was at a conference once many years ago. And it was, it was a man's conference. And we were there and, and the guy was speaking. And eventually he asked us to divide up into groups of four or five guys and just pray for each other's needs. And so I was sitting with another four or five guys and we were going round in the circle and we were praying for each other's needs. And we got to this one guy and he said, well, I've got this really bad hip and bad knee. We said, well, pray for it. He says, no, no. He says, I know that Jesus can heal me, but don't pray for me. He says, because if you do, I'll lose my benefits. Now that maybe seemed ludicrous, but that was the depth of the man's faith. He knew that Jesus could heal him. But he didn't want healed. Because that was his, that was his, uh, his meal ticket, if you want to call it that. Because if he got healed, not, he wouldn't be rejoicing because he'd have to go out and work. 
and, and it, I mean, it sounds crazy, but that, that caught me with surprise. I mean, I was a relatively young Christian at the time, and I thought, but you know, when I look at it now, I think, you know, I can understand that. I can understand where this guy's coming from, because Jesus knew where these guys were coming from. Was this something genuine, or was it just a, a burst of emotion that came out of them? Some people don't want to get rid of their sin. Some people don't want forgiven for their sin because it's too big a challenge. People don't want to come to Jesus because it's too big a challenge in their life. It means that their life is going to change and it's going to change radically. Not because, not because they have changed it, but because Christ will change it. And so we've got to ask ourselves the question, do we really want rid of what we have? Because sometimes God knows our heart better than we do. And we don't want rid of these things. The size of this church, I don't know whether it will ever get any bigger. Small churches that preach the word and preach the gospel tend not to be huge. Because it's too big a challenge to people. The word of God as it's taught and preached verse by verse and chapter by chapter becomes a real challenge in people's lives and they don't want to change but these guys replied yes Lord at verse somewhere 28 sorry so the one essential for a miracle is faith the one essential for the miracle is faith and why do I know that because faith is a gift from God the faith that God gives you to believe that he can do it I know it sounds a bit kind of backwards but Ephesians 2.8 tells us that, you know, that it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. So even the faith that we need to be saved is something that God has to give us first of all before we can actually believe it. And that's, I know that it sounds a bit topsy-turvy and upside down, but our whole life and our whole being now those of us who know Christ as Lord and Saviour, it's based upon that faith that Christ has promised us eternal life and that eternal life is waiting for us when we step over eternity's threshold. So the sight was restored to these men and it, it would have changed their life. It was, a, it was a life changer. I mean, to have been blind and to get your sight back would have been a life changer. And yet that's what these guys wanted and that's what Jesus gave them. Why did he give them it? Because he knew their heart. He knew that they needed to know him as Lord and Saviour. Again, I look at it from the point of view, the way the Pharisees looked at it. If you get healed like that, then your sins were forgiven. Or your sins were forgiven first and then you get healed. So here, was a, here were men, blind men, who had been healed. And because of the superstitions of the day, they would expect their sins would be forgiven as well. So what a joyous time it was for them. Whether they recognised who Jesus was or not, they would certainly recognise the miracle they had done in their life. And at verse 32, while they were going out, a man was demon-possessed and could not talk, was brought to Jesus, and when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed, and nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Why has nothing like this ever been seen in Israel? Just the day before, he had driven demons, a legion, out of two guys in gathering. So why has something like this never happened before? 
Well, again, it comes back to the superstitious things that people believed at this point in time. Remember when Jesus spoke to the demons and the two guys at the gathering? He asked them their name. And they said they were legion. Well, that was the common, what would you say, the common practice. That before you could drive out a demon, you need to know its name. That was what the Jews believed at that point in time. I don't know whether they still believe it or not, but that's what they believed at the time, that you couldn't drive out a demon unless you knew its name. You had to have its name first. And here we have a situation where a man who was mute, in other words, if you asked him for his name, he couldn't tell you anyway. So therefore, he was incurable. And yet Jesus drove the demon out of him. And that was why the people said nothing like this has ever happened in Israel. Because this was a man who was demon-possessed and yet, although he could not speak his name, Jesus could still heal him because God Almighty, through Jesus Christ, is above all things. Two reactions we get from that. The crowd were amazed and the Pharisees were furious. Isn't it always the same? The religious people are the first people that get furious. The punters are the people that are amazed. I mean, we're easily amazed. Or easily amused, one of the two. But there's two reactions here. The Pharisees were too set in their ways to change. They couldn't accept this. And that's exactly what Jesus was talking about the day before, about new wine and old wineskins. And a piece of new cloth and a piece of old cloth that one would tear the other or the wine would be poured into an old skin and it, it would expand too much, the skin would burst and not only would the skin be lost, but the wine would be lost. And that's really, these people were furious at the fact that this man could come along And so what was he accused of this time? He'd been accused of blasphemy, he'd been accused of impiety, he'd been accused of spiritual laxity, and now he's been accused of being a demon. And that often is the way that religion reacts to Jesus. And I say religion because I want to reiterate it again. If you know Christ as Lord and Saviour, you don't have religion. You have faith. That's what you have. And it's simple enough. You just have faith to believe that God knows what's best for your life. And that when this life is over, we step over eternity's threshold and we'll be with him forever. And that's the basis of it. So, now he's been accused of being a demon-possessed. And the accusations get worse. And they will get worse. You know, there are certain parts of the church today who... If they spoke to me and asked me the questions about my testimony, I speak in tongues like many other Christians. Some don't, some do. It's a gift of God that God gives to some and not to others. Some will be teachers, some will speak in tongues, some will be healers, etc., etc. But if I said that to some people within the Christian church today, they would accuse me of being demon-possessed. And that's sad. Because this new thing, and it's not new now, but it's, it's, it was new at that time. There are people up in Lewis at the present time, and I was kind of reading about it this week, when the great Lewis, Lewis revival occurred, there are people up there who still don't know anything about it because it was completely denied by some sections of the church as being demonic from the devil. 
And yet here we are. So things have not changed. When you find yourself being persecuted for righteousness sake, rejoice in it. Because it's God that's doing the work in you. And I'm not saying that all of these daft, crazy fads that are going around are godly things. They have to tie up with the word of God. Um, It's not just a case that when somebody comes along with some new fad that we just accept it. We compare it to the word of God and if it works, it works. And if you're in any doubt, leave it alone. And so we get to the point here where at verse 35, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching them in synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. When Jesus looked, he saw a crowd of ordinary people. People. The Greek word for compassion here, and I can't pronounce it because it's about this length. But the Greek word for compassion here is the strongest word that they can use to be, to have pity on someone, but not in a, in a condescending way, in the sense that you really want to help. The, the pity is, is a genuine pity. A pity, a compassion that moves someone in the deepest senses of their whole being. A life-changing compassion, if you want to call it that. And Jesus, that's the word that Matthew used. I just wonder how Jesus actually physically looked when Matthew saw him, when he looked at the people. I wonder if there were tears in his eyes, if he was, if he was overcome by the compassion that he had for these people. Such was there. Such was that they were lost, they were harassed, they were helpless. A number of passages in Matthew, and you can look them up for yourself, I'm not going to tell you them this just now, but a number of passages show this compassion. You know, when he saw the widow of Nain coming out of the city, roaring and crying behind her dead son's coffin, and he'd obviously only just died because, as I've explained already, they buried her dead in the first day in the Middle East. He'd only just died. They were taking him out to the burial grounds. And Jesus came across them. And he was moved by the sorrow. He says he had compassion on her. And he, was, and, he, and he opened the coffin. I mean, can you just picture it? Taking a body up to the graveside and opening it. Take the lid off. And the guy gets up. It's unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. And yet that's what Jesus did. And the sorrow was turned to joy. He was moved by the people's hunger. How many times did we see him feeding people or miraculously feeding people as he fed the 5,000? He was conscious that people just really in some measure didn't have enough to eat. And many at this time in Palestine, oh Palestine, (laughs) mush your mouth out with soap. There wasn't a place as Palestine at that time. In Judea and Samaria, Israel, there was no such, <clears throat> there wasn't a lot of food. There wasn't a lot of food because the Roman army and the tax collectors like Matthew took a lot of it off them. And he was moved by the world's loneliness. Remember in the previous chapter he healed the leper. There can be no more lonely person than a person who had leprosy. And for the first time in that man's life, for a long, long time, somebody touched him. Somebody touched him. He was moved by their bewilderment, as he says here, harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd. 
I don't know, I've worked with sheep quite a lot and I don't know whether you have or not, but if you leave them to their own devices, they'll get everywhere. You're always chasing them up for every corner and of course, it doesn't matter how good you think the fence is, there's always one of these sheep will manage to get through it. It's, it, it's a guaranteed. <clears throat> you can put wires that are that close together and it still finds a way to get through. So you're always chasing them. They just kind of spread out. And Jesus could see this. These people are going in all directions. They've got no focus in their life. He was moved by their bewilderment. And he says the harvest is plenty. The people are all there. The people are all there. All the people that we need to reach at this point in time, they're all there. We're not looking for particularly the middle class or the upper class. We're not looking for the people that, can, that would look nice in our churches. We're looking for the people that Jesus looked at, the, the dumb and the lame and the lepers and the, and the weak and the bewildered and the lonely. Do you know the only thing that stops us at times from ministering to these people? It's our own prejudice. And it's sometimes that we have to get over that. We have to learn to get past our own pre- prejudice. We have to learn from Jesus. people were totally prejudiced against lepers and yet Jesus went in amongst them you know if we go amongst the people and start to preach the gospel we'll be put to the test how do we feel in this part of the world about Roman Catholics yeah their doctrine may be off the wall and totally but there are people without a shepherd they're lost they're bewildered when you start to explain to Roman Catholics exactly what it is they're believing in, they can even tell you that it seems absurd. But how do we feel about them as people? In this part of the world, there's a lot of sectarianism, a lot of problems. And yet, God only looks, as far as God's concerned, there's only one race in this world, and that's the human race. There's neither black nor white nor brown nor green nor yellow or whatever. How do we feel about the Muslims? Their theology might be totally wrong and their God might be the wrong God but they're still part of the human race. Although the way some of them are behaving at the moment you would wonder. But let me tell you this if we think we've got it right at times I was listening to something the other night and as late as 1928 in this country we were still selling our wives in an open market. We were bringing them along to the market and selling them. And one woman in Wales, it was written down, she was sold for a pound. Now that was only in 1928. That's not even a hundred years ago. And that's in this country. So again, as Jesus says, you know, take the plank out of your own eye before you take the splinter out of your brother's. These things will be put to the test for you. How you react to them. We know that people in the Middle East are badly treated and women are badly treated. And that Christ has truly set women free. But there's still a long way to go. But this plentiful harvest then. Would be the prelude to Jesus sending out his disciples. Although the chapter um, notation is there. We go back on to chapter 10. It was all one script. If there was one thing. When Matthew got up from his his tax raising table. He brought nothing with him. Except his pen. And he used it to write this story. And so, Jesus lays out for the guys. The harvest is plenty. Here they are. Look at them. Look at them. People without a shepherd. Look at them. The lepers. The, 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 the ungodly. 
the unlovely, the smelly, the people that nobody wants. These are the people that are part of the harvest. Now I want to send you guys out into the harvest. You know, I was just thinking about it as I was reading some stuff the other day. The story goes, Jesus, after coming here as a man and dying and rising again for the dead, for the sin of the world and returning to heaven, and the angel Gabriel said to him, that's a wonderful thing that you did, Jesus. Does the whole world know that you did that? And Jesus said, no. I've entrusted it to 12 guys. Those that followed me. I've given it to those 12. I'm trusting that they will go out and tell the whole world that I died for their sins. And Gabriel, in this fictitious story, answered, what if they don't? What if they go back to fishing? Or back to the tax tables? Or back into relationships that they thought were finished? What if they're distracted? What's your plan then? Jesus said, I have no other plan. The the reality is that the Holy Spirit will lead these men and compel these men to share the gospel throughout the world. There is no other plan. Jesus is going to use you and me to spread the gospel to as many around us as we can find. You may not have a particularly successful ministry. We look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called by the Lord when the people were being disobedient and really off the wall. And he told them, you know, the Lord says you're going to be taken captive into Babylon if you don't mend your ways. And and they put him in prison and they beat him and all the rest of it. For 40 years, Jeremiah told the people, repent and turn for your sin and the Lord will forgive you. And he never got one. There wasn't one person responded to his call. And yet that was one of the most faithful and successful ministries that God had ever put in this earth. It's not about numbers. It's about proclaiming God's word to the people who are dying. If they don't receive it, there's nothing that you can do about it. You just go to the next one. So verse chapter 10, Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out demons or impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Luke actually tells us that he spent a whole night in prayer up a mountain somewhere before he picked the twelve. Remember at this time there were lots of people following him. There would be people on a daily basis who were coming and going and saying, yep, we're following this young rabbi from Galilee. We know who he is. But it took Jesus that one night up the mountain with him and his father to get them. And these are the names of the twelve apostles. First Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. It's interesting that the word Simon there means shifting sand. And he says, you shall no longer be called Simon, you shall be called Petros, the rock. So he went from being unstable to being stable. He was going to be the stable one amongst them. You know, Andrew, his younger brother, was the one who brought him to to Jesus. He he was a disciple. Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. And when he saw Jesus, and when he saw John the Baptist saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Andrew ran back and said to Peter, You have to come and see this guy. This is the Messiah. This is the one we were waiting for. 
And so Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. But Peter blossomed under Jesus, especially after he'd risen from the dead. Andrew was the younger brother. And sometimes, you know, sometimes we can feel the same way. We live in the shadow of somebody. You know, Isaiah was the same. King Uzziah was actually a distant cousin of Isaiah. And what does it say in Isaiah? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. When the big brother, the overshadowing, was taken out of the place, there was always somebody to step into the gap. It's hard sometimes to learn to be a number two. Andrew was a number two to Simon, Peter. Peter was always the one who sort of overshadowed Simon, if you want to call it, uh, Andrew. And then we've got James and John, called the sons of thunder because they were, they were fiery and they were bad-tempered. And I can tell you that because it says in the Bible that when one of the cities refused to accept Jesus and literally wanted to stone him, he said, they said to Jesus, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire in this place and blow it apart? You know? And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking, boys, here, you know. So John, James and John were pretty, uh, were pretty fiery. And yet, when we see in the later life of John, when we read John's Gospel and we read Revelation, John became known as the Apostle of Love. Even in his latter days, church history tells us that when he was 90, 95 year old, they had to carry him into church because he couldn't walk. And when he sat him down in front of the people... All he said to them was, Brethren, love each other. Just love each other as Christ loves you. That was, his, that was about as much as he could remember. And that was a good bit to remember. Bartholomew or Nathaniel, those two names can be interchanged because one sort of means the other. But Nathaniel, in some measure, was the skeptic. When they came looking for Nathaniel and he was sitting under his tree and he says, can anything good come out of Galilee? You know, it was a joke. Because, you know, the, the Judeans made jokes about the Samaritans and the Samaritans made jokes about the Galileans and the Galileans made jokes about people that come out of Nazareth, just the same as we do with kind of Irish things, you know. Can anything good come out of Galilee? So here we've got one who's shifting sand, two that are bad-tempered, one that's... Uh, Loving in the shadow of his brother. One who's a sceptic. This is a great choice that Jesus is making here, isn't it? Then we come to Thomas, the doubter. Thomas who, after the resurrection and the disciples had seen the Lord in the upper room and Thomas wasn't there and they come back and he says, unless I see the holes in his hands and the holes in his side, I won't believe. So we've got a doubter as well. We've got somebody here. And I think to myself... Why are you picking these people for Jesus? And then I think, he picked me. No. And then we've got Matthew, the guy that wrote the book. He's the rip-off artist. No. If you want to get anything, see Matthew. Matthew will get you. No. He's the tax collector. He's the one that manages to rip off people, talk them out of their money. And of course, there's James, the son of Alphaeus, whom we know nothing of, except that Matthew was a son of Alphaeus as well. Whether it's the same, we think. We think as commentators that they're probably brothers or cousins at least. But we know nothing about James, or James the Lesser, as they want to call him. And that's good, because there are many people in the Christian church today who think they're worthless because 
They never push their opinions. They hold back. They want to be in the kitchen at parties, if you want to call it that, you know. They don't want to push themselves forward. And Jesus has picked a whole gambit of people here. Jesus needs us all. And then he comes to Simon the Zealot. I mean, if you had Matthew in your team, you wouldn't want Simon the Zealot because Simon the Zealot was, was in the borders of being a criminal. He was, he was in the point of overthrowing. His whole focus in life was, let's overthrow the Roman government. Let's blow up the railways if we had anything, you know, or kill the camels or whatever it is they do. And let's just be totally antisocial towards the Romans, you know, social disobedience and all the rest of it. And of course, we have got Matthew there who's working for the Romans. So the first thing Simon Zealot wants to do is stick a knife in Matthew. And here they are all pulled together as a group. Do you recognise this group of people that are doubters and want to stab nice in each other? You know, does, does it ring any bells with anybody in here? I don't know. Just a strange mix indeed. And finally we get Judas the betrayer. Judas the betrayer, whom everybody liked and trusted. And I know that because they made him the treasurer. He carried the purse. Watch yourself, Anna. He carried the purse. He was the guy with the money. He was the guy that we find out later in the Gospels, in John's Gospel, that he was dipping the purse. And yet, all the disciples must have liked him and trusted him, otherwise they wouldn't have given him the purse to look after. So he's given last, but he was the betrayer. And probably amongst all of them, as a group, they liked him the best. It just shows you the way man's heart is. We seem to like the people that can talk their way around things. When you look at any of the lists of the apostles in the Bible, Peter's always first. Judas is always last. And the rest are in between. Peter's always first because Peter was going to be a leader. Weren't they all going to be leaders? Yes. But Peter was going to be a leader amongst leaders. He was first And you know, when I look at all these, and I want to encourage you this morning, when I look at all the different foibles and problems and failings and all the rest of it that these guys had, I'm encouraged that Jesus can use me. It's a blessing that I can look at all these guys. Then Jesus sent out, at verse 5, he sent out the twelve with the following instructions, Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. What a package Jesus has given these guys. And you know, there doesn't appear to have been one of them questioned it. How are we going to heal the sick and raise the dead? They were absolutely sure. The faith that Christ had given them was such that they were sure that they could do this. Jesus sends them out to see the people, but he sends them out fully equipped, but with restrictions. First one is, don't beat the sheep. There are too many preachers today who want to hammer people. It would be easy to go to these people, it would be easy to go to the unsaved and say, you're going to hell if you don't repent. Turn or burn. What does Jesus say to them? Rejoice, the kingdom of heaven is near. The positive side of it. 
Okay, we can get to the negative side of it already. But when that's what the people wanted to hear. The kingdom of heaven is near you. Because Christ has come, the Messiah is here. And they would recognize it for what it is. God is here with you. The disciples would say to these people. And I'll tell you why we know he's here with you. Because we'll show you. We'll heal your sick. We'll raise your dead. We'll cure your leprosy. We'll bring your people into a right thinking. If they'd gone to the Gentiles first, the people of Israel, the Jews, would have rejected them. There was such a, 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 an acrimony between the Jews and the Samaritans, between the Jews and the Gentiles, that if the disciples had gone there first, there would have been an unacceptance amongst the Jews. The Jews were the people, not because they were anything special, but God had entrusted them. They were given the word through all the prophets and all the Psalms and all the, 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 the Old Testament. They should have known who it was they were looking for. And of course, that was why, in some measure as well, that the disciples would go to the lost house of Israel first. If you want to be involved in missions, let's get into an attitude. Let's be able to cross the street before we cross the oceans. You know, let's look to where we are. I mean, the disciples were told in Acts chapter 1, you're going to get baptised with the Holy Spirit that will make you witnesses for me. And going to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the uttermost parts of the earth. They lived in Jerusalem. They had to go into the streets where they were. When you can... Handle the mission in your own street. God will give you another street. He might even give you an overseas ministry. Or he might just want you to minister in the area you're in. This is where we are right now. This is the opportunity. In fact, I was just thinking about that this week. We were talking to Doreen. And, um, I talked to her quite a lot right off. But, um, <laughs> it was literally today that we went to India last year. It's been a lot of water under the bridge since this time last year but this was when we went to India last year out to see and to take a mission out to there to see what was happening with the people to see what the harvest was like you know and when I thought about these people my heart went out to them I mean I was in tears looking at them and yet it took me all my time to pick these children up because they were filthy they were, you could see the fleas jump around them and they were just lost sick bewildered and that's what mission is there are these type of people all around you let's put our prejudices aside and, and see if we can reach these people God will give you the strength God has no other plan than to use you and the word here when they were told to go out and proclaim the gospel believe it or not the word in the Greek is caruso to sing it do you remember the great Enrico Caruso? That was where he took his name from, actually. It was a Greek word that, that means to sing. So he was Enrico the singer. Um, and that, I mean, if you've got good news, what do you do when you're happy? You sing. Well, maybe you don't. But, but it tends to be that way. You know, if you're standing washing the dishes or whatever, you hear that when you're standing washing the dishes or whatever. And the radio's on and you're singing away because you're happy in what you're doing, you know. Anyway, freely receive 
freely receive and give. You know, that's what Jesus said. I've given it to you all. I've fully equipped you. So go and give it back to these people because they deserve it. But many people today say, but I've got nothing to give. What do I have to give? The Bible quite clearly tells us we don't have because we don't ask. Maybe we need to spend more time in prayer. Maybe we need to spend more time beseeching God saying, what do I need for this situation? What will you give me, God? That wee bit extra faith just to believe. More prayer. That's what we need. We don't ask. We don't get. He didn't give them a hard time. He just encouraged them. Don't get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff. For the worker is worth his keep. If you went into a town and preached the gospel and healed their sick and raised their dead, do you think somebody might invite you for a meal? I think it might be possible that people would be queuing up wanting you to come to their house and bless them. So when you go into a house, bless that house. It's a habit that I've developed over the years. When I go to somebody's house, I'll always pray in that house before I leave it. Because I want to leave it more blessed than I received it. I want to give something into that house that maybe it wasn't there before. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay there until in their house until you leave. There was a missionary that I knew had gone to the Philippines. And he'd gone at the time, just about the time when, when uh, Fernando Marcos, was, his, his empire was fallen. And, but he was still in power. But he'd gone, to the, he'd gone to the poor people of the area and they had received him and blessed him and all the rest of it. And then he got an invite from the Marcos regime to come and stay with them and to speak to them. And of course he got sucked into this. And he went with them and he was blessed and all the rest of it. And they fetted him and whatever. But he lost touch with the common people. And it was never quite the same afterwards, he said. He said, when I went back to the common people, they always treated me with some sort of suspicion. Because I had gone, I had not stayed with them, but I'd wanted to go with somebody who was maybe, as they thought, more able to politically advance them. He says, I made a mistake, and I'm forever sorry for that. And as you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it, to verse 12. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave them at home, leave that home or town, and shake the dust off your feet. And in some measure we've already crossed that, because the Jews, when they had to cross a piece of Gentile land, in fact, they wouldn't cross a piece of Gentile land unless they had to, but if they did have to, as soon as they get back into sort of Jewish land again, they would literally do the, the habit of shaking their feet and shaking their clothes and making sure the dust was off them. That was, that was their way of showing people that even although they had come across a Gentile or a Samaritan piece of ground, they weren't Samaritans or Gentiles. They would, they would make a ritual of shaking the dust off their feet. I don't know whether you've ever noticed, it used to be sometimes with the Jehovah's Witnesses that when they came to your door, when you rejected them as you should, um, well, not rejected them with their doctrine, but not as people, that you could see them standing at the gate and they would kind of do this with their trousers. And that was them, that was them acting this out. They were shaking the dust off their feet and leaving your house without a, a blessing. So it's... Uh, 
The other people, of course, are the people that reject the, the true gospel. We need to be honest with them. I mean, with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and these kind of people, we need to be honest with them. We need to tell them the truth, that they're barking up the wrong tree. For truly, I tell you, it'll be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than that town, a town that refuses to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where are we at in Scotland today? How many towns are rejecting the gospel? It will be greater, a greater judgment upon them than the judgment that was brought in Sodom and Gomorrah. If we hold fast to the truth, I just want to read this last bit for you. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, therefore be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what you do or what you say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Shrewd as snakes. Sneaky snakes. Snakes, I suppose, are handicapped in some measure. They've got no arms and no legs. But they can wheedle their way into the most awkward spaces and hide themselves. In fact, I read a story this week about a 25-foot boa constrictor in Florida. And it managed to break into a drain by bursting it with its... You know, they, they, they wrap themselves around something and squeeze. And it burst this drain. And then it get into the drain and it come up through the toilet. <laughs> so, you know, you know, people with the gospel can turn up in the strangest of places, you know. If you're, if you're as sneaky as snakes are, you know. And as wise as doves. Wise in the sense that although we might be handicapped by our own failings and our own sin, we can still find a way to proclaim the gospel. If we do hold fast to the truth, and it's coming, we will be brought before the governments and the councils and be chastised for being narrow-minded and blinkered and stubborn. In my lifetime, and I've not got much left, I don't suppose, I still expect to be arrested someday for preaching and teaching what the world considers to be wrong. But the reason we are to be persecuted is that we're to be as wise as serpent. We will be witnesses where no one thought to find us. The snake gets itself into that place where no one expects to find it. And we will be put in a position, if we stick fast to the gospel, we will confess it before men, before the, the councils, before the governments, in the places where you would never expect it to be given witness. God will take you there to be a witness. As Jesus sent out these guys, I want to encourage you to stir up your gifts and go on with it. Don't sit there and wait for something to happen. Seek God and seek Him. And find your neighbours, find your enemies. Make them your friends. Bring them into the kingdom. Sometimes we just get too complacent. So I'm saying to you this morning, come on. Rise up and be a witness for Him who saved your soul. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Lord, encourage us with your word that we might indeed be the people that would see a difference in this town and this surrounding area, Lord. Wherever we have a light, Lord, help us to shine it in the darkness. Help us not to be afraid to be a witness, Lord, to be the people that you have called us to be. When we see the disciples that you called, Lord, with all their foibles and all their fears and all their fascinations with different things, Lord, we are the same. We, we, 
We are no worthy of the name. And yet you have given us the name. Christian. Little Christ's. So Father be with us and bless us. And help us to spread your word further. For we ask it in Jesus name. Amen.